Welcome to the All Bases Covered podcast with me, Rob Smith. And this conversation continues our environmental theme as I'm chatting with Paul Whitfield, who's Director General of Wildwood, or more properly, the Wildwood Trust. People in East Kent have known about Wildwood for years. It started out as a passion project for a bunch of enthusiasts who wanted to reintroduce native species like red squirrels or pine martins or dormice back into the UK. Rather a distant and far-fetched dream in the 80s and 90s. But now the whole world knows about Wildwood, and even more specifically the Bleen Woods, because they've just released four wild bison there. They actually thought they were releasing three, but one of them was already, in fact, secretly pregnant. And the story of the first wild bison to be born in England in thousands of years went global. Even Leonardo DiCaprio tweeted about it to his 55 million followers. So now literally billions of people around the world know that there are wild bison in the woods near Canterbury. So we chatted about all of that, about bison and chuffs and rewilding in general, and the fact that global governments have been meeting for COP15 in Montreal talking about biodiversity. Uh, Not to be confused with COP27 that happened in Egypt that was discussing climate change. And we also talked about how important it is to get on with the neighbours if you want to release bison into the woods. So on the 19th of December 2022, on a very wet and windy day, I went to have a chat with Paul at Wildwood. If the weather had been calm and dry, we'd have just gone into the woods to record it. But as it was filthy, we stayed in the comfort of his shed instead. You may hear the rain hammering on the roof at some points in the recording. It's just his temporary office while repairs are carried out on his usual office, which has been attacked by wild animals. (laughs) No, really. Uh, absolutely, all the, the some mice and squirrels have helpfully chewed through the wiring in my usual office, so it's been completely rewired. So I'm I'm in a shed for winter. I like that gets rewired. <laughs> I guess it's, a, it's an occupational hazard of being at Wildwood, isn't it? That there are a lot of mice, squirrels, all sorts of other rodents about the place that are going to attack your wiring from time to time. Uh, absolutely, um, you know we're, we're in the woods. We're full of wildlife. We encourage as much of the native wildlife into the woods, and yeah, there are consequences of that, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So here we are, we're in the shed, um, and uh, I mean, it's a miserable day today. We've just been through a spell of properly frosty weather, and now it's about 10 degrees uh, milder than it was yesterday. Yep. I guess this is the kind of weird, extreme changes in climate that we're going to have to get used to. Absolutely. Um, Hotter, drier summers, colder, wetter winters, all the rain arriving in one lump rather than slowly spread across the year. Um, yeah, it's, it's climate change in action, really. Yeah, it really is. Isn't it? So I wanted to start out, we're going to talk through all sorts of things. We're going to talk about the bison, obviously. We'll, yep. we'll talk about your new bear as well <laughs> that's arriving. Um, and uh, talk about all the stuff that's actually going on in terms of sort of conservation, what Wildwood does as we go through it. But I really wanted to start off talking about um, COP. Yep. So we just had COP27. We have. Talking about climate change. And COP15... And it's massively confusing, these, these naming is. of these cops, but that's on biodiversity and that's sort of just coming to a conclusion now. It's finishing in Montreal literally as we speak. Yeah. Right, okay. So how, here's a big broad question for you, how are you feeling about the, the kind of the global response to climate change and biodiversity at the moment? It's a really tricky one. I, I actually think we are at a tipping point. We're at a tipping point where 
if we do some of the right things, we can halt it and reverse it, mm -hmm. particularly in terms of biodiversity. We've not quite reached the point of no return. So there is an opportunity. And at the moment, there finally, finally after years and years, seems to be the political will, the popular will, and the will of the media as well to actually talk about this stuff and to try and make a change. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm slightly optimistic. I'm not particularly optimistic that the government targets or that the COP targets will be met. But the fact that they're setting targets and talking about it and it's been reported shows that groundswell of movement in the right direction. Right, okay. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? That, you know, because you're right in the, in the front line, actually yes. trying to conserve stuff on the ground. Have you, you've, you've noticed a difference in people's attitudes? Absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, Wildwood was set up 20 years ago. We've got our 21st birthday next year, uh, which will be a big event for us. But when we started 20 years ago, we were all about restoring native species, restoring the wildwood. Um, you know, the wildwood's name comes from the whole idea that we've lost the wildwood in this country. If you go for a walk in the woods, you don't see any wildlife. Mm. You might see a grey squirrel, which is an invasive American species that's causing damage. Um, we've lost all our animals. Mm. The whole idea of wildwood was to recreate areas where those missing species are back in the woods and you can go for a walk in the woods and get that real connection to nature. That's what we were all about from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. We never used the rewilding word back then. It was a controversial word, a bit of a dirty word. People didn't really like it. Um, we redid our whole mission, vision, and how we talk about ourselves a few years ago. We're going to do a rebrand in January, and rewilding is right at the heart of how we portray ourselves and what we say and what so, we do. So do you mean there's been a kind of a journey in terms of the public's perception of what conservation is that now allows a concept like rewilding to be talked about yes in a in a rational way rather than it being a kind of like hippie tree huggery knit your own tofu you know the Absolutely. kind of stuff that that elements of the the, the the further right in the press would would have a field day with a few yes. years ago now it's just mainstream and normalized absolutely yeah and and people finally understand what it's all about there's still a bit of controversy around the word in some specific areas you know people are quite hostile to it in some places mm -hmm. but the reality is is rewilding is just about working with nature so rather than going in and doing incredibly intensive practical hands-on management of habitats by people to make it right for the creatures that we've lost or to maintain it in just the right condition for those creatures to carry on clinging to the barest bit of survival that they've got is actually what you do is you use nature you use keystone species within that environment because they manage it for themselves and for those other species in a far more complicated, dynamic, complicated way than we would ever even think of or even know how to do. Well, it's remarkable, isn't it, that nature managed to look after itself <laughs> before mankind. Absolutely. Along. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when we go in and we try and do it, we do it in a very neat way, mm -hmm. in a very human way, and we don't understand the processes that are missing. Um, putting the right species back puts the processes back and enables nature to heal and restore itself. Okay, so that brings us neatly into what's actually going on, literally 100 yards that way. Absolutely. In, in the Bleen yes. woods. Um, you've, you've reintroduced bison. We have. Into the woods. I mean, that's, they're quite big beasts, aren't they? How's it going? It's going 
amazing. It's, it's, it's a fantastic project. You know, we, it's actually happened very quickly. So we first came up with the idea of the project, it must be three and a half years ago, um, ourselves and Kent Wildlife Trust. Um, we managed to secure the funding relatively quickly for this sort of thing. And the bison are out there. They, they are in the first area of the bleen, literally off, off Wildwood's fence line is the bleen, and mm -hmm. there are the bison. Mm -hmm. So we've got the first four bison out there at the moment, um, out there doing their thing, rewilding it, making it more complicated, creating space for other species. So, I mean, it's, it's miserable weather today. Do they mind this kind of stuff, or they, are they just they not bothered? They don't care. It mm -hmm. doesn't bother them at all. Um, actually, in the frosty weather, it was fantastic. We've got some beautiful video imagery of them sitting in the frost, breathing with just mist coming out of their noses and, and off their backs. It's uh -huh. phenomenal. But no, this is, this is what they've evolved to live in. You know, they don't care about the rain. They don't particularly like the mud. Um, but they, yeah, they're, they're very happy out there. And in, in terms of um, what it means then, in, in terms of what they're actually doing, eco-engineering, however you want to put it, yes. you know, the fact they're in the woods, what are they actually doing? What difference do they make? I mean, there's a whole range of stuff that they do. And they're not setting out to do any of this. This is just them acting just as they about. should. Yeah. Being bison, being wild bison in that woodland, their natural behaviour does all this stuff. So one of the first things that we saw them doing is there's a big area out in the Bleen that used to be conifer plantation that was cut down about nine years ago. And it's regrown just as monoculture um, birch trees. Right. Thousands upon thousands of these very thin, small trees growing sort of an inch apart, uh, taking up a, acres and acres of the woodland. And it's very dark under there. Nothing grows underneath apart from a bit of bramble and a bit of bracken. Um, so it's very poor for biodiversity. And one of the first things they did was literally walk through those areas as if it was long grass, just pushing the trees down with their weight, walking over them, using their chest to push the trees down, eating the leaves, eating some of the branches, but they've created pathways right through the middle of some mm. of that really dense regrowth. Um, they started out as very narrow, you could just about squeeze down it as a person. They're now about a metre and a half wide, some of those pathways. And what they've done is they've cleared that area, they've left their dung along it, They've nibbled everything that's grown, and they, their hooves have churned up the, the soil. So in spring, the sunlight is going to hit that ground. It's going to be fertilised, churned up, and it's going to be an explosion of regrowth of whatever is in the seedbed in that soil. So that's just one example of what they do. And are you, are you hoping that will be other, because obviously there's a lot of birches there. Yes. So is it not just going to be birch that springs back? It will be all sorts of stuff. But the birch that grows back, they're probably going to eat because it's really tasty. Um, <laughs> okay, so it's going to create all these space for all these other species to grow, and they will continue to browse and nibble it. Um, but they also they dust bathe, so they actually roll on their back in the sandy soil, and they create these big bowls in the ground. And just around the edge of that, there's a little microhabitat for all sorts of species of herbs and lichens and fungi and insects that just live on that peripheral area. The dust bowls themselves are ideal basking habitats for reptiles. Mm -hmm. um, and when they fill up in rain like this, they're ephemeral ponds, which are really important for all sorts of species. So, uh, the uh, and I think lots of people haven't got their head around it, the idea of putting bison into the woods is not to save the bison, it's to save fungi and uh, you know, every other animal and creature in the woods that needs that space. They're just a kind of an opportunity for those other species to get in there and do their own thing. It's a bit of both, actually, because the bison in this project are all part of the European Endangered Species Programme. Mm -hmm. um, bison are an endangered species. They went 
completely extinct in the wild. There were 20 odd animals left in some zoos in Poland and every single European bison now living was bred from those captive animals. Um, they are, you know, it's a real success story for zoo captive breeding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've now got, I think it's 6,000 bison, European across bison Europe. across right. Europe now. Uh -huh. And they're all bred from those individual animals. But there's an extensive stud book where the genetics and bloodlines of all the animals are kept. And these animals are part of that program. So the bull that should be arriving any day now uh -huh. in Germany, he's coming with a fresh bloodline that's not represented in the UK at all. So the bison that will be breeding here are really important genetic animals for other projects and potentially for going back out into the wild as well. And you've already had a bonus baby bison. We have, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> the first three animals that came in were an older matriarch from Scotland and two young females from Southern Ireland. And one of those females from Southern Ireland was carrying an extra passenger. And, um, and yeah, nobody she, knew. Nobody knew. They, they, it's very hard to tell if a bison is actually pregnant unless you do an ultrasound on it. Mm -hmm. and, it's not usually a very good idea to trip around ultrasounding bison. They don't like it. Um, so we were unaware, and literally one day, the bison rangers were doing their daily checks of the animals, walking through the woods, checking where they are, checking their body condition. And it was like, one, two, three, oh, what is that? <laughs> and there was a, you know, a, few, a few hours old baby bison. Yeah, um, amazing. Complete surprise. Yeah, amazing. How, yeah. How's it getting on? She's doing fantastically, uh -huh. actually, yeah. So she is, well, she was born in September, so she's a few months old now. She's starting to browse herself. Mm -hmm. um, she's changing colour. She's putting on her thick winter coat. So, yeah, she's doing brilliantly. Do you know, is there a point where you go, yes, this is successful? Um, I think it already is, um, but there's so much more to come. Mm -hmm. You know, the bison are going to be joined by Iron Age pigs and Exmoor ponies, and between the three of them, they will act as three different ecosystems engineers within that woodland, mm -hmm. creating huge amount of dynamic change. Um, when will we know it's a success? It's when we see the results of all the research that's happening there. So all right. baseline surveys. And this is, it, this is an ongoing thing, isn't it? It's like, Absolutely. it's not done in a year or in three years or five years. No. It's just like, this is it forever now. Absolutely. So we got funding for the first three years of the project to set it up, put all the infrastructure in place. But this is a long-term project. We want this project to run for decades. Mm -hmm. And every year we will get new data, new information, and hopefully see more development of the biodiversity, more species coming back, more unexpected things happening. So let's talk about the bear briefly. Yes. Um, because you, you're, have you taken delivery? You're taking We delivery? have taken delivery last Tuesday. Of? Um, a bear cub. A European brown bear cub. So at Wildwood, we've got two visitor centres where we've got native species for people to come and see. Uh, native species that we currently have, like otters, badgers, foxes, polecats, but also the species we've lost. So we've got grey wolves, European brown bears, lynx, beavers. So it's an opportunity to come and see our, our species that we have and, and that we've lost. Um, and one of the things we're really proud of is our best, our bear rescue and rehabilitation work. So we have so far rescued four bears that were in conditions where they needed homes, they couldn't go back out into the wild, mm -hmm. and they needed to be rehabilitated to learn to live like bears. So we've done it with two old bears here in Kent and two bear cubs that are now down in Devon. And we've just taken delivery of a young bear cub, Bocky, um, who hopefully is going to be mixed with a bear cub that we're trying to rescue from Finland, who's in terrible conditions at the moment. Um, so those two will effectively teach each other to be bears, um, get over the trauma that particularly this Finnish bears had, and then hopefully introduce them to Fluff and Scruff, our, our older bears, 
Um, it's really important for bears in captivity to have other bears around to uh -huh. socialize with. Yeah. It's really enriching for them and it helps them get over a lot of the, the trauma that they've had in their past. Would you like to see bears released into the wild in the UK one day? In an ideal world, I would love it. I can't see it being realistic in my lifetime at all. Mm. Um, in an ideal world, yeah, absolutely. They are a native species that are, they're just wonderful. But I can see why people would be terrified by the idea. Um, you know, we've got a long way to go in this country before we talk about bears or even wolves, to be honest. You know, we, you know, we've killed pretty much all our, all our native species and all our predators. Uh, the last predator we've really got is the Scottish wildcat, um, which is functionally extinct in Scotland now. We've actually got a breeding program here where hopefully we'll be doing a reintroduction of wildcats into Wales in 2026. Mm -hmm. But even that, people are worried about it. Oh, you know, is it going to kill my sheep? Is it a danger to my pets? Is it a danger to my children? We've got a long way to go to get people used to the idea that we should be living with wild animals, that these wild animals have a place in our world and that actually we need to find a way of living with them. So how do you get on with the neighbours here? Because you've released wild bison into the, uh, into the woods here. Is everybody cool with that? Um, we did a lot of work before the bison arrived to talk to all the neighbours, mm -hmm. make sure they understood, they knew what we were doing, why we were doing it, and listen to any concerns that they had. Actually, the vast majority of people are incredibly supportive of the project, really proud of it. Some of the neighbours around here uh, are the, some of the first people that have been walking around the perimeter, seeing if they can see the bison, finding them, being so excited about it and put it on social media. So people actually are really excited about the project. There's always a small number of people who aren't happy about change, people who walked their dog through a particular area that's now fenced off are upset, but actually the vast majority of them, once you talk to them and explain what we're doing and why we're doing it and listen to their concerns, understand and are really excited by it. Because, um, I mean, farming obviously, and, and you, you were talking about, you know, if you've, you've got apex predators in any environment and then farmers are deeply worried about their livestock, yes. whether it's sheep or pigs or goats or whatever it is, it doesn't matter, they're, they're worried that they're, their commercial crop is going to be affected by yes. the fact that they might be picked off by whatever that, that animal that's introduced yep. is. So you've got to have a really good relationship with, with uh, the, the kind of the pragmatic users of the countryside, the people who are actually growing food, whether that's livestock or animal yep. stuff. Is that relationship shifting over time? I, I think it is, actually. I, I really do think it is. Um, but it's quite hard to tell. The media will quite often try and stir up division and they'll try and get a very anti-rewilding farmer and a really sort of over the top, I just want wolves back now, rewilder, and sort of pit them against each other. Mm -hmm. Let's look, look at the conflict here because it, you know, it's interesting, it sells papers. A farmer saying, well, I'm a bit concerned, but they've reassured me. And a rewilder saying, well, we were going to do it like this, but actually we've talked to the farmers, they're worried about this, so now we're going to do it here instead of there. It's not very exciting for the press, is it? Um, but that's the vast majority of the conversations that happen. Um, the Welsh project we're talking about, you know, there's going to be two or three years of local consultation before, before anything actually happens to make sure people there are reassured and understand what, what's happening and what's proposed. And, and actually try and get the local people involved and co-creating part of the project so that they actually feel the sense of pride and ownership in it. It's really important. And you've, yeah. been, you've been involved in this kind of stuff for how long now? 20 odd years? Um, I've been involved with Wildwood for 19 years. Mm -hmm. um, I've been running Wildwood for the past six years. So in terms of the, because politics is a big part of all of this, isn't it? It is. Um, are you seeing changes at the top level of government at all? 
in the way that they actually have an attitude towards wildlife and rewilding. Because as you say, it's, it's much higher on the agenda in the public space, the, the kind of you know, people talking about it. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that opinions have changed in Whitehall. So have you got any insight on that? There, ha- there is change. Um, again, 20 years ago, this wasn't on people's agenda. They didn't really care about it. They didn't see it as important. But I think the fact that it's getting so much attention now, so much press, so much publicity, um, they realise that it's something that, even if they don't particularly strongly believe in it, they want to be on the side of. Mm-hmm. So we last, on, literally on Friday, the uh, DEFRA announced the new environmental targets that they said they were going to set out in the Environment Act. And I think they had 180,000 responses to the consultation on what they should be. Mm-hmm. They know people care about this. So it's becoming more important. And there are people in politics who genuinely care, um, you know, and who are pushing this sort of stuff. Our local MP is Sir Roger Gale, who is the minister with special responsibility for beavers. Um, he's been a big supporter of Wildwood and the sort of work we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's great to have someone there who, who does care and who is prepared to push some of this stuff. Um, the Bison Project has had ridiculous amount of press. It's been fantastic. Your best mates with Leo DiCaprio now, aren't he? he, he him posting about our project twice on his Facebook and Instagram has been huge. You know, he's got 55 million followers. You know, when we when we went out to try and get um, the funding for the Bison Project, we were saying, you know, lots of people would be excited about this. You know, we're going to reach six million people with news and information about this project. And so far, I think we've hit four billion people. Wow. You know, there's an article in the Washington Post when the baby bison was announced. You know, it's, it's gone everywhere, and it's, it's amazing. But the great thing about that is the political people have also seen that and seen how excited people are by it. So I'm hoping that in January we're getting a visit from the all-party parliamentary group for the environment to visit the project mm-hmm. because everyone's excited about it. Mm-hmm. So good news stories like that, that people are engaging with and interacting with are actually really important as part of that political change. People see it's positive, people see it's a good news story, people see people getting behind it and they want to be part of it. So I, I was having a chat with uh, Evan Bowen-Jones a few weeks yes. ago, uh, who's the, the in charge of Kent Wildlife Trust and obviously you're close working partners with him. That's right. And, and he was essentially talking about that um, politicians in a funny kind of way almost need permission to be able to do these kind of things. Mm. That that if it, once there's a big enough public groundswell of opinion, they can then latch onto that Absolutely. and use it to their advantage. Yeah. And it's taken quite a long time for that groundswell to actually break into the open. It has uh, absolutely, and you know, it's been a it's been a long, slow process, and it always is with politics. You know, we we had COP fifteen, like I say, in Montreal, just happening, making some really big announcements. You know, the government's put in place these targets for 2043, I think, and it's like they're a bit woolly and they're a bit... And we're probably not going to hit the targets because we never do. But at least they're talking about it, they're attending these events, it's on their agenda, and there's things there that people can get behind and push, you know. So, chuffs. Let's chuffs. talk about chuffs for a moment. Absolutely. That's another one of your big projects. At the it moment, is. Isn't it? How's the chuff project going? It's going really well, actually. Um, we were hoping to do the first release of Chuffs in Dover last year. Mm-hmm. Um, delays, and Brexit, and materials, and bird flu, and lots of small things just caused little delays here and there. How, how's Brexit caused the problem? Getting materials in to build enclosures, oh, really? um, and the quadrupling of the cost of metal and things like that. 
absolutely. So lots and lots of things, and you just couldn't get hold of materials at certain points. Um, so we built this release aviary for the, for the chuff down in Dover. We've got the chuffs into it. They were almost ready to go, but then the weather changed and all sorts of things. So next year, we should have the first release of chuff back into England. And why does it matter? I mean, they're beautiful birds. They are. Um, they're they're kind of like a big blackbird, small crow with a bright red beak, aren't they? So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and red legs. I mean, they're a really they're a species that we killed mm -hmm. fundamentally. We we killed all the chuffs. We saw them as crows, and they were killed because they were seen as pests. Um, they're not. They actually eat insects almost completely. Their diet is insectivorous. Um, but loss of habitat and persecution meant that they were completely wiped out. So what out. farmers thought they were eating the seed yes. and would persecute them for that. Absolutely. But they were actually doing them a favour. There was also a folklore myth that the chuff would set fire to barns with their red beaks of and course. their red legs. Well, um, <laughs> yes, it's, it's an obvious thing that they would do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so there are species we've lost. But actually, and again, the chuff is... It's beautiful to bring this bird back. It's a missing species that should live here. It's a very important cultural bird for Kent and Canterbury. Mm -hmm. But actually... It's on the city coat of arms. Isn't it, it is. The three little birds on the Canterbury coat of arms that you see at the cathedral and on the mayor's chest and on all the pubs around Canterbury, mm -hmm. those are chuff. Mm -hmm. you know, that, they're, they're, on, they're a really important bird for the area. Shakespeare mentions the chuff flying over the White Cliffs of Dover. Um, so yeah, they're, culturally they're really important. But actually the return of the chuff is a story about the restoration of grassland on our coasts and mm -hmm. acid grassland in particular mm -hmm. because the chuff need the insects so you need to manage the grasslands around the coasts so that the insects are there so taking ivermectins and things out of the grazing looking after the right sort of grazing right. ivermectins um, it's a pesticide given to livestock that goes through their system but means that their dung is quite sterile right so you don't get the beetles and the dung beetles and all the insects living in the dung so that's why if you see a lot of farmers' fields, they're covered in cowpats that just sit there and nothing happens to them. Take the ivermectins out of the system, what you get is lots of dung beetles all over those, breaking them up, putting them into the soil, restoring the soil. It's one of the reasons our bison are on pretty much no medication at all, because mm -hmm. their dung is a really important part of what they're putting back into the ecosystem. But you put lots of drugs into your animals and that just stops. And it okay. causes soil breakdown and it's one of the reasons why there's no insects stuck to the front of your car in summer anymore. Right, okay. So, I, I, I didn't realise no. that. No. So a lot of the chuff work is actually working with the local farmers and the landowners in the area to talk about these sorts of things and changing some practices. Um, so this goes back to what we were talking about, that you've got to have a good relationship absolutely. with the farmers, yep. with the actual food producers, to have that conversation at all. Yep. And the chuff project, it's, it's a partnership between us and Kent Wildlife Trust, but we're also working with English Heritage and the National Trust and the White Cliffs Partnership and lots of landowners in the area. And the, the ultimate goal of the chuff project is actually an entire southern coast chuff reintroduction. Mm -hmm. So have chuffs all across the southern coast of England linking up to the tiny little population that we've still got in, in Cornwall on the Lizard. And I'm presuming that it's the same mentality as with, with having bison in the bleen. If you've got uh, grassland that chuff can live on, all sorts of other stuff there will be able to thrive as Precisely. well. Precisely. So lots more insects, which provides food for other birds, other bats, and uh, other insects. And it's a... Yeah, it's... You bring back one species that, I mean, 
a chuff isn't going to environmentally engineer its environment, but by creating the right circumstances for the chuff, you help all sorts of other species too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, not a canary in the coal, line, coal mine, but a, a chuff on the cliffs. Absolutely. It's a, it's a good indicator. Yeah. So let's kind of go full circle then and talk about you just for a little okay. bit. Okay. What, what's your, how did you end up being Director General of the Wildwood Trust here? It's a long and weird story, actually. Come on, then. <laughs> um, so I, I originally, well, I take it right back to the beginning. My childhood was spent in East Africa and the Middle East. Right, okay. And my hobbies were going out and finding chameleons and scorpions and snakes and black widows. Um, that's what I did as a kid, that's what I enjoyed. Um, so the Gerald Durrell. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I, I would wander in the desert in Oman and just look for weird beetles. Um, and for a while I had this pet beetle, which I wish I had photographs of because I've never found it in a book. I think it's a new species of beetle. Wow. This amazing beetle I had that had pincers on it that used to bite me. But it's, it's, not, it's not in any species book anywhere. Uh -huh. um, but that's, so that, that's... How long did you have a pet beetle for? Um, I didn't really know what to feed it, so I had it for a few weeks and uh, let it go again. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I had pet black widows in my room and things like that. So. Your mother must have loved that. No, she hated it. I wasn't allowed a snake. They tolerated the insects, but no snakes. Um, so I always had a fascination with the natural world mm -hmm. and, and, and animals. Um, so naturally, I did a zoology degree. I graduated in 1994, and I was supposed to be doing a PhD. It's like, exciting. Um, so I moved up to Manchester to do my PhD, and the funding for it got pulled. Mm. So I got a job stacking Christmas baubles in WH Smiths. Quite right too. And then I got a job working in a bank, then I got a job working in the NHS, and I did all sorts of jobs while I tried to get back into, tried to get funding for a PhD. Mm -hmm. So I was at a complete loss. I was trying to work out what I was going to do with, with my life when I met my, my wife. Um, and she persuaded me to get a real job and stop messing around, so I retrained and became a solicitor. Right, okay. So I did a law conversion degree, and then I did a legal practice course, and she worked and sort of funded me through those. Mm -hmm. And I became a trainee solicitor, uh -huh. uh, specialising in employment law, of all things. So the, the journey that you've had, you did a thing that you really didn't want to do, but it was just a pragmatic solution to getting some money coming in. Yes. But if you hadn't done that, you would have never been able to put yourself in a position where you could actually get involved with doing the thing that you really wanted Absolutely. to do all yeah, the way yeah. along. Yeah. And being a lawyer, I always used to say, was the least worst job that I'd had. Right, okay. Um, it was really intellectually what, stimulating. Be better than the bauble stacking at WH Smith? Listening to the same one-hour tape of Christmas songs on a loop that slowly drove me insane, yeah. <laughs> but no, so I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed parts of it. It was a real intellectual challenge to mm -hmm. do it. Um, and I, you know, I got a lot of experience out of it. But yeah, so I, I did that piece of work for Wildwood and then... I came to Wildwood to see it. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was a fantastic project. Mm. What they were doing was amazing. Um, the big difference to most sort of zoos, animal parks, charities is it was all about native species. Mm -hmm. It's not going over to Africa and telling them, oh, you should do it like this. Mm -hmm. This is how you should look after your native species. Mm -hmm. England is in a real state of terrible biodiversity. I think it's the most, or one of the most depleted natural environments in the world. Isn't it, it is. On biodiversity intactness, I think we're in the bottom 19% of the world, mm -hmm. which is embarrassing. Mm. You know, it really is. And so the idea that there was a charity really trying to focus on that and working with things like water voles and red squirrels and harvest mice was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So 
Ken persuaded me to become a trustee so that I could do all my legal work for them for free in the future. Right. <laughs> um, and so I was a trustee for a few years. And back then, I think we had, I think we had a turnover about, I'm trying to remember now, it was about £400,000. Uh-huh. About 16 staff. And we had about... So it was really hand-to-mouth. Really hand-to-mouth. Every, every year, if it rained in Easter, we were terrified we'd go bust because mm-hmm. we needed the visitors through the gate and, and the membership to come in. Um, and so, yeah, it was very much hand-to-mouth, very, very, everything was on a shoestring. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at Shed now, everything was in Sheds. Um, so it was, it was a fascinating organisation to get involved with at the early stages. And it built and it grew over the years. Um, a few years later, Ken had some health issues and he was the chairman of the trustees at the time. And mm-hmm. he needed to step down from that and ask me if I would become the chairperson. And at the time, I was like okay, you've probably asked everyone else and they've said no, um, so I'm, I'm clearly going to be your la- last resort. Um, but he hadn't. He, he saw, it was one of, those opportun- one of those situations where he saw in me something I didn't see in myself, which was an ability to lead that board and, and the organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll always be grateful for him for that, because at the time, I just, this is very strange, I was the youngest person on the board by quite a lot and the least experienced in this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was the chairman for, it must have been seven years, and during that time the charity built and built and built, mm-hmm. we took over a second park in Devon, um, you know, our income had gone up, we were doing more stuff, and the management structure sort of fell apart mm-hmm. quite horrifically. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd expanded beyond our capabilities and all the sort of the pillars of the organisation started to collapse. Um, so the other trustees asked me to come in in my sort of employment law hat just to stabilise things. So I stepped down as a trustee, became executive chairman, and came in on a part-time basis just to resolve all that conflict and difficulty that was, that was happening. That was seven years ago. Mm-hmm. It took about a year to resolve all of that. And at the end of it, we had a far more stable organisation. Um, we'd reviewed our mission and our vision and restated what we were all about and and everyone was sort of moving together in the same direction which was great Mm because there'd been lots of infighting and siloed working prior to that Um, and it was brilliant and at the end of that year the other trustees we sort of met up to review it over lunch and they said well this sort of works Paul why don't you just do this (laughs) and give up the whole legal side and just run Wildwood. So I'm just going to up some (laughs) all of that then so that you so you started off uh, wanting to do zoology. Yep. You did all the rubbish jobs for a spell, became a solicitor sort of accidentally, specialised in employment law, got called in to do um, a tricky job here, yep. got more and more involved in it, and then eventually became the position you're in now. Absolutely. So did, it is a long story. <laughs> did, did you have to sort of take a big pay cut then, effectively, when you became chief exec here? Yes. <laughs> So it really is a passion project for you. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm finally doing something that I love. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I absolutely love what I do at the moment. It's something that means a lot to me. Um, I've got a lot of passion for, and I take a huge amount of pride in what we do here. So let's look forward over the next five years or so, um, and we'll get to you know COP20 on biodiversity and COP32, <laughs> whatever it is for climate change in five yes. years' time. In an ideal world, what would you like to see happen over the next five years or so? 
In terms of Wildwood or more generally? In terms generally? of Wildwood and more generally. Well, like I say, I think we're at a real tipping point. Wildwood's at a has really, one of the things that we put in place a few years ago was to really step up our conservation work. Mm -hmm. We've, you know, for those 20 years, we've been breeding all sorts of native species for release, but actually no one had ever really heard of Wildwood, mm -hmm. unless you were a visitor or mm -hmm. lived locally. Um, so it was a really important thing to push Wildwood forwards and do projects that would have a bigger impact. So the Bison Project is clearly a huge one. The Chuff Project, really exciting. Um, I mentioned the Welsh Wildcat Project, you know, so there we're working in partnership with Durrell Conservation Trust out of Jersey mm -hmm. and the Vincent Wildlife Trust, who've done all the pine martin restoration in Wales. Um, and we realised early on that to do these big projects, we need to work in partnership with other people. Mm -hmm. And Wildwood had never been very good at that, we'd always just try to do our own thing. And actually, I don't think that's possible. I don't think you can do these big projects without working in partnership with other organisations. Mm -hmm. So Wildwood's expertise is our animal stuff. We know how to look after the animals, we know how to get animals into the country, we know how to health check them, sort out radio tags and then monitor them when they're out in the wild and, and captively breed them as well. Um, that's what we do. There's lots of other people out there who own land, who've got the practical side of doing that local stakeholder consultation work and it's making sure we're working with the right partners so we've got a full complement of people to deliver. So Wildwood has changed our approach completely. So a lot of it's taking ego out of it project comes first, the species comes first. We're doing this to restore this species. Not so that I get my face on the telly or that Wildwood gets lots of press. That's great, that helps us talk about the project, but that's not what it's about. Mm -hmm. And we've got a leadership and management team here now that all work in the same way, which is fantastic. Because obviously you've got a very close relationship with Kent Wildlife Trust, yes. but all the Wildlife Trusts are separate. That's right. All the Woodland Trusts are separate. The National Trust is separate, yep. there's English Heritage, there's English Nature, there's all these, I mean, literally hundreds of different bodies doing all these. Is the, the whole, for want of a better word, eco-movement just too fragmented at the moment? Do you need to have a kind of a more, an umbrella body to come together underneath to actually have a, a bigger stick to beat government with? It's a good question. Um, it would, be, it would be nice if there was one, but there isn't one. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, what you do have is lots of organisations that are very good at doing their, their thing bit. and mm -hmm. their bit. And actually, at the moment, I think the key is getting them to work together collaboratively. Um, one of the things that's come out of the Bison Project and some of the collaborations we're doing, is a group called the Large Herbivore Working Group, which is effectively Snappy title. all the people in this country who are trying to do nature conservation using herbivores. Mm -hmm. So the bison project, um, the, the guys at NEP, all people using water buffalo, all sorts of the people, people from Spain who are working with bison, people from the Netherlands as well, getting together to work out how we collaborate to open doors to make more of this possible. Um, so the first meeting of that happened here at Wildwood a few months ago, um, and there'll be regular meetings of that. And part of that is, is identifying what bits of legislation we need to challenge and lobby on that will make this sort of stuff easier to do and less mm -hmm. expensive. Mm -hmm. you know, people ask why, no, why has no one done a bison project before? Well, it's incredibly complicated and really expensive to do. But having now shown that you can do it, we've almost got a guidebook for other people to do. Right. But there are massive challenges in doing it. You know, the, the legislation was not designed for these sorts of projects. Um, and so we need to work out 
where we can challenge that and actually collectively start to lobby on that. And in the next five years, what I'm really hoping is, is we get those groups of people coming together and lobbying on the key points where we can make a difference that really opens up the doors for this sort of stuff. I mean, the huge challenge we've got at the moment is funding. Uh, getting funding to do this sort of stuff is incredibly difficult. There is almost no government funding for this sort of work. Mm. Um, the Bison Project was funded by the Players of the People's Postcode Lottery, and that's a three-year fund. Now that's gone, we need it to be a self-funding project, which, which is difficult. The Chuff Project, we applied to all sorts of funders. I think we were rejected five times for major funding, so Green Recovery rejected it, HLF recovered it, re rejected it. So we went out and did a crowdfunding appeal and managed to get members of the public to give us enough money to make the project happen. Mm -hmm. um, there is, within the government's review at the moment, new funding mechanisms coming out of the review of the um, European Agricultural Funding. Um, and they're talking about ELMS as environmental land management, which is a big fund to enable landscape scale wildlife nature restoration. If that actually does happen in the right way, that will unlock significant funds, significant amount of land, and will actually really make a difference in delivering. Because what that, needs to that was one of those things that was really part of the whole Brexit conversation, wasn't yes. it? That the certainly under the the Boris Johnson administration, he was very keen on pushing that side of things. That's right. Um, so that farmers would actually be paid money to manage the countryside, not just to produce absolutely crops. Um, where are we actually at with that <laughs> at the moment? Because it's sort of under the Truss administration got immediately shunted to the side. It did. Is it? Is it? coming back in again at the moment or how are things looking? Well, I mean, this, this, and this is a really interesting thing, it's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm a bit optimistic is the Trust government came in and were very much pushed to one side and there was a humongous outcry from thousands of these organisations against it, huge petitions, a massive public response which was no, but also a huge response from landowners uh, saying actually We've spent years working on this. We've come up with a scheme collectively that might actually bloody work. Don't, don't, do not throw that in the bin. Mm. Um, and so it's been reviewed. Uh, there were some announcements last week which were a little bit cryptic, but it sounds like Elms is back on the table for delivery. Um, it sounds like part of it which was local nature recovery strategies was taken off the table but might be coming back with a new name so fingers crossed in january we'll get a proper announcement that it, that funding is, is sort of back on the table and and actually as you say it will pay farmers to deliver public good and in some cases yeah absolutely that's going to be farming and delivering food but in other places where it's marginal it won't be it will be restoring nature on some of this marginal land which actually for years and years and years has been farmed in an unproductive way that makes no money for anyone and only exists because of government subsidies and produces poor quality food. So let's up sum everything then. You said at the beginning that you're a little bit optimistic. Mm. Um, what's your single message to the, the movers and shakers, to Rishi Sunak? Let's, let's assume he's going to be listening. I'm sure he listens to all my podcasts. Absolutely. So Rishi, what do you want him to do? 
At the moment, we are in a biodiversity and climate crisis. Those two things are inextricably linked. The solution is inextricably linked. In order to do what we can in this country, we need to stop the decline of biodiversity. We need to protect what we've got. We need to make what we've got better and more biodiverse. Then we need to make it bigger and link it up so that we end up with genuine landscape change where nature has space and systems where it's able to recover. And it's doable. That is doable. The whole 30 by 30, so 30% 30 of land restored for nature by 2030, that is absolutely doable without affecting food security or anything like that. If we can do that, it will lock up, I can't remember what the number is, but it's, it's millions of tonnes of CO2 every year. It's equivalent to 12% of our annual output. Mm -hmm. Just by doing that, because trees and grass and bushes will suck all that carbon out of the atmosphere and lock it in the soil. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, there are people out there trying to create incredibly complicated um, technological solutions that they can stick up in the air that will suck carbon dioxide out of the air. We've got them. They're called trees. And we just need lots and lots and lots of those and shrubs and, and you know, Stuff that grows. Rambles, yes, anything that grows. Grassland, and we need the species back in there that manage it and keep it rich and keep it complicated. You know, nature needs complexity to thrive, and you get that complexity by having the right keystone species back in the environment. It's all there, it's all doable, just need the political will to actually deliver it. Well, I'm sure he's listening, so we've got that sorted out. Absolutely. It's going to happen. And in the meantime, people like us will carry on doing what we can wherever we can. Well, Paul, it's been great having a conversation with you. Thank you ever so much for giving me your time. No, you're welcome. And uh, keep up the good work. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Rob. Paul Whitfield there, Director General of the Wildwood Trust. Well, that was a, an enjoyable ramble through the thickets of rewilding and conservation, wasn't it? If you want to find out more about the work that they do, then the website is straightforwardly wildwoodtrust.com. Dot org. There's loads of great stuff on there. Bears, wolves, lynx, bats, beavers, you name it. If it's a native British species, they're all over it. Now, we actually recorded that conversation shortly before COP15's agreement to the 30 in 30 project, aiming to protect 30% of the planet for nature by the end of the decade. Let's see how that actually uh, pans out, shall we? But at least Rishi Sunak now knows that there are powerful advocates for nature in the UK who will hold him and future governments to account. Hey, Rishi, yes. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with me, you can always email me, robsmith at wildrovermedia.com. And in the meantime, until the next time, look after yourself. All the best.